scripture reading for you this morning from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who, who apprenticed to him, he uh, committed, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. This is what he said. You are blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you there is more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one that is most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that cannot be bought. <clears throat> you're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. His food and drink is the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care at the moment of being careful. You find yourself cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are in a place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not, uh, not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it meant is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. For those they don't like it, I do and all heaven applauds, and know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses that have always gotten into this kind of trouble. This is the word of the Lord. So over the next few weeks, over the summer, we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. It'll be Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, we're going to highlight some different parts of it that we think are important, that we feel particularly led to. And so this morning, we will start with the very first of Matthew 5 in the famous Beatitudes. So the Sermon on the Mount, interesting that we call it the Sermon on the Mount. It never refers to itself as a sermon. That's what we call it. But it is the call of Christ on the followers of Christ on how best to live out this calling, this calling that we have, this path that we follow to follow the life, the teaching, the words of Jesus. This is how we get that. This is how we get the gospel with skin on in these three chapters. This is the gospel with feet attached to it. It is us at our maximum potential. Now, it doesn't take too much in pondering this, especially in light of the past couple of weeks, past few years, particularly, particularly in America, we have trouble remembering this. Somewhere along the way, we have forgotten the way of Christ that he laid out for us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We have. You know, there's been a lot of focus. I don't know how many of you are on Twitter, uh, but I follow... Uh, a group of people that, uh, and, and Megan will know this too, they're, they're these group of, they're called Theobros. And they're like these, say that again, Theobrogens, Theobrogens. 
and it's a bunch, it's these, it's a group of men who are pastors who believe in, in patriarchal notions and very, a more fundamentalist way of viewing the Bible. And inevitably, in a lot of their conversations, it always comes back to when Jesus got mad and he overran the money changers out of the table and he, out of the temple. And he, you know, That's what they want to focus on. And if that's too unkind and too harsh, I'm so sorry. But that is exactly what they focus on. Jesus charging in. But they forget about, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that humble themselves. There is a more fulsome gospel to be taught than just Jesus got pissed off. Yeah, he did. But he's more than that. He's more than that. In verses 1 through 2, when Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. And this is what he said. The literal translation here should read, he opened his mouth and began teaching them. N.T. Wright translates it this way. Jesus took a deep breath and began his teaching. This is deliberate, purposeful, focused. Jesus gathers his thoughts. Jesus is not distracted. This is a big deal. This is a big message. And he wants his listeners then and now to listen. The Greek word for beatitude is makarai, which means blessing. So these, all these blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, are called makarisms. A student of Amy Jill Levine once told her that uh, this Greek word to her sounds like macaroons, and that's how she remembers to say makaroi or makarai. And Amy Jill Levine says, macaroons are also a blessing, and I can testify to that as well. <laughs> so can my waistline. But this word, macaroi, macarai, has been translated as happy. In some of your translations, you will see happy. Sometimes it's translated as rich, or fortunate, or praiseworthy, or congratulations. But all the scholars that I read over the past couple of weeks, the word for macaroi, the blessed, is the one that fits it the best. Because blessed Im implies a divine involvement. Also, I think it would be offensive to say to someone who was in mourning, you should be happy, or congratulations for mourning. Doesn't work, does it? McKnight, Scott McKnight, says he likes to think of this term blessed as God's favor is upon. So think of it this way. God's favor is upon you when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God in his rule. God's favor is upon you when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. Talking about flipping this, how many of you grew up in the context of if your life was going well, this is what we're talking about, Jennifer, how many of you were taught growing up that if your life was going well, you had good health, you had a good job, you had a good family, you got along with your partner, your kids were well-behaved and not in jail, yada, 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 you were taught, oh, God's favor's on you. How many of y'all were taught that? You can raise your hand. You can raise your hand. So what's the inference if your kid is in jail or your marriage is falling apart 
or you've lost your job. What's the inference? God's favor is not on you. We have gotten this so backwards. Jesus is saying God's favor is on you when you're hurting, when you're mourning, when you consider yourself less than the person next to you and consider their needs before yours. That's where God's favor rests. Now, if life is good for us, you know, bank accounts up, blood pressure's down, we certainly should be thankful for that. In the book of Sirach, which is in the uh, Apocrypha that we don't know a whole lot about because we don't really study the Apocrypha, Apocrypha uh, there's this whole text that talks about Blessed are you who have money, who have good health, who have a great support system, are the ones who have plenty to eat. Think of it as blessed are the ones who have air conditioning on the inside of their homes and good health care and clean drinking water, a fat 401k, and six months worth of living expenses saved up in the bank. Yay you, if that's you. Not I, just came back from France. I don't need any commentary from you either right now. <laughs> we believe that if we do good, good comes to us. We believe that if we do bad, bad's coming to us. Karma, what else do we call it? You can speak up at any time. We believe that. That's the way the ancient Israelites viewed God. That's the way they saw God. That was all they knew. That's, that's all we know. But in the book of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet tells us time and chance happen to us all. Sometimes we lose our job and we did nothing to deserve it. Sometimes children die in a school shooting and they did nothing to deserve it. It would be nice if life was that simple. I wish it was. But you don't get to be my age and think that anymore. The rain falls on the what? The just and the unjust. I can remember being a teenager, uh, and I, I'm the kid that was in church every time the door was open, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, whatever. And there was a youth in our youth group. She was a couple years older than me, and she came from a very good family. And she was sharing her testimony one Sunday morning. Any of you grow up with people sharing testimonies on Sunday morning? Okay. So, you know, people would get up and share what God has done for them or what God is doing for them. They'd testify to the goodness of the Lord. And so this girl, she, t she shared how blessed she was because she had a good family. She had a roof over her head. She'd been blessed because she had uh, great friends and her needs were met. She was blessed because she had all these good things. And I was 14, she was 16, and I had none of those things. And when you're 14 and you have none of those good things... And somebody stands up before you and says, I've been blessed because I have all these good things. What does that 14-year-old hear? I'm not blessed. I'm not blessed. God must not like me. And it leaves a mark on us, people. I'm 49 years old. I remember what she was wearing the Sunday she said that. Innocent. She had every right to say, God's been good to me. But when we say that God has blessed me because of this, we have to be aware of what that's not saying and how that can be hurtful. 
Sometimes, guys, it's just stinking luck. You just got lucky. How many else of you grew up with being told, don't say luck, it's not luck, it's blessing. I'm here to tell you, undo that in your head. Sometimes it's just luck. Sometimes it's good planning. Some of you that have the great 401ks and the six months worth of living expenses in your bank account, you're good planners. There's nothing wrong with that. The Sermon on the Mount describes what Jesus' people do and what they look like. We are taught what to think of people that we don't care for that much. We're taught in the Beatitudes, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, and you're going to hear this over the next few weeks, how to honor our marriages, how to approach anxiety and mental health care challenges, how to be a true disciple and not a false one, and how to recognize either, in these, either of these and others. We are taught how to view our personal material treasures on this earth, how to pray, how to be a disciple, how to forgive, how to be thankful, and how to be introspective. Verse 3 says, You're blessed when you're at the end of your road. With less of you, there is more of God in His rule. Or in the NIV, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit does not mean weak in spirit. It means not being conceited or proud. In particular, it, has an, it describes people who have enough humility that they do not operate from a sense of pride. They know that they have benefited from others and they are on the lookout for the benefit of others. Poor in spirit means that we know our own privilege and we work to help others find theirs. It doesn't mean, poor me, I'm a worm. I mean, I am, but just kidding, I'm not. It means more than that. It goes far deeper than that. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. Being meek does not mean that I am insignificant next to you. Being meek does not mean that I am insignificant next to you. In this instance, this meek right here means someone who has authority, but they choose not to lord it over you. The opposite of being meek means that I have the right to not only tell you what to do, but how, when, where, and how to do it. Do as I've told you to do. It does not take into account your present circumstances what you need or how you might respond. I think When I think of this, blessed are the meek, the church that uh, my family and I served in years ago in Alabama, there was a pastor there. His name was Brent, wonderful man of God, wonderful guy. And I guess the tithing was kind of low, going low, going south in that church, and the deacons were after him all the time. You've got to preach on tithing. Let's do a whole series on tithing. Let's do a whole series on stewardship. And he resisted it at every turn. He was like, mm, it's not the time, it's not da 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 This went on for months. Now, in a Southern Baptist church, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the deacons make the calls, not the pastor. And so, the, but, but I found out later the reason that Brent was adamant that he didn't want to preach on stewardship was because he was counseling one of those deacons who was going through a very hard financial time. 
and he felt like all the problems that he was enduring in his life was because he wasn't tithing. And Brent was trying to undo that thinking in his brain. God doesn't work like that. And here's this group of deacons forcing him. you got to get up there and preach on it. But he knew if he got up there and preached on stewardship, he knew how John, that deacon, would hear that. He would hear that as, oh, I've got to tithe. And here's the thing. The man had five kids, I believe. If he had tithed his unemployment check, how are his kids supposed to eat? But he knew because of John's thinking and way of viewing the world in the Bible that that's exactly what John would do. John would begin to tithe, making sure his children did not have enough food to eat. Now somebody please tell me where is God in that? Should we tithe? Yeah, we should. But we do it carefully. Or we don't do it at all because that's between you and God as far as I'm concerned. So sure enough, he had his hand forced and he had to preach a sermon. He did one sermon on tithing. And to see this man, this young man, he was so super confident, such a wonderful orator, just a wonderful preacher. It was the worst I'd ever seen him. He was so not confident, unsure. He was just, you could tell the nerves were just all over his body. And sure enough, what did John start doing? They eventually left the church. Meek means I have authority, but I don't punch you in the face over it. I don't kick you when you're down over it. Meek means saying, I know I have some authority here, but you're not going to see me wielded as a weapon. And let me just say this personally as someone who, as a pastor of a church, has some authority. If you ever see me do that, and I mean this to the bottom of my heart, if you ever see me do that, from here, from Facebook, in a conversation, at a meal together, I need you to call me out on it. Because my heavens, we can be blind to this kind of thing. And I'm not immune to that. Meekness. You're blessed when you're worked up a good appetite for God. His food and drink, his food and drink is the best meal you'll ever eat. Or blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. People that hunger and thirst for righteousness are people who work for justice and mercy for everyone. You're blessed when you care. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. Blessed are the peacemakers. I'm going to come back to that one in a minute. You're blessed when you can show people. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. And I think you probably all get this and know this, but let me just say something. All the people that cry persecution these days, they are not being persecuted. Some people are, but they're the ones that are not shouting it. Be careful. Persecution is not telling you you have to bake a cake for a gay couple. That's not persecution. Persecution is not saying you're fired because you're gay. That's not persecution. This is a whole message in and of itself, so I'm not going to. 
This morning I want to talk about peacekeeping and peacemaking. And to me, peacemaking and peacekeeping are two different things. For me, peacekeeping is keeping my mouth shut when I don't want to rock the boat. And let me tell you something, I'm not a boat rocker at all. I want you to like me. I really do. So I like to keep peace. If, if you need something from me, and, I, you know, and, and I'm thinking, oh, that's not, mm, it's hard for me not to do what I truly need to do because I want you to like me. Now, I will say that after 49 years, this is not as prevalent in my life as it once was in my 20s and 30s, but it's still there. Make no mistake, it's still there. Peacemaking is different. And this verse and these Beatitudes, peacemaking is different than peacekeeping. Peacemaking is actively pursuing peace between people. Peacemaking is not saying, but my rights. That's not peacekeeping. Peacemaking. It doesn't say, but my interpretation. Or the Bible says that, and the Bible says this, and that settles it. That's not making room for peacemaking. Many years ago, in 2015, when um, gay marriage was legalized in America, I was in a church that was predominantly more conservative in theology and in social issues. Uh, but there were people in that congregation who were more progressive. We just happened to be a minority. And so this whole gay marriage came up to the forefront and was a big deal in this church because everybody wanted to know, was the pastor going to marry gay people now? Now, this is my pastor and my professor from back home. His name's Robbie. You will meet him in October because he will be here in October to do a conference for us on deconstruction. So this is what Robbie did. He preached a sermon on blessed are the peacemakers. However, if you were there that Sunday, you don't remember that the sermon was blessed are the peacemakers. You remember the two chairs sermon. And I'm going to explain. So Robbie brought up two chairs to the front of the stage, and he said this. There are two chairs on this issue of LGBTQIA+. There are people in this congregation who think it's wrong, who have always thought it was wrong, and who will always think that it's wrong. And you sit in this chair in this congregation. But there are also people in this congregation that don't believe it's a sin. They've never thought it was a sin, or maybe they came to an understanding that it's not a sin now. Maybe they once thought it before, but they don't see it as sin, and they also sit in this congregation. And so what happens is we're trying to have conversations with each other over this issue, and so we're talking to each other. But I'm right. No, 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 I'm right. You're wrong. No, you're wrong. And we're not listening. We're not listening. We are just my interpretation, my philosophy, my Bible. And you keep this going without a spirit of humility, meekness, I might even add, without a spirit of I want to make peace. And eventually you have this. Now, the problem with this is, is there's never a chance for peace. 
You don't want it. And that can be a problem. For people who interpret scriptures differently than I do, in particular on LGBTQIA plus issues, topics, I understand why they do. I interpreted them the same way at one time. I was in this chair for a long time. But about 10, 11 years ago, I had a kid come out to me. Is anybody following me here? It changes the whole game. And it becomes not a game anymore. Because this is my kid. So this is important to me now. More than it was. It's important. I can respect people that don't see it the way that I do. A majority of my family, a lot of my friends that were at my wedding two weeks ago. But we love one another anyway. We don't need to get into a fight over it because here's the deal. They know my kids too. And they love my kids. They may not understand it. But they know my kids. They've known my kids since they were babies. And they love my kids. So when I think about peacemaking, I think about these two chairs. But I also think about more than just pride issues. I also think about gun violence issues. That never in my lifetime did I ever think that I would have to talk about in front of a congregation or feel compelled to. We can have productive conversations with people who see it differently than we do, who see gun violence differently than we do. We should. But the moment that it becomes dehumanizing, we're done. We have to be done. When you tell me that you're right to own an AK-47 or what, I don't even know what they're called, AR, whatever they are, whatever those things are. When you tell me that you're right to own one of those, Trump's my kid that's sitting in a classroom, we're done. I can love you and I can pray for you. We can be casually friends. We can go out to dinner even. But no. And you know where I get that? Not only because I have children, but because I get that from the Sermon on the Mount. Somebody please tell me in Matthew 5, 6, or 7 where we see what you want and what you think is right and what you need for out of this life trumps what I need. It's not there. It's just not. I was having this conversation yesterday with someone at the, at the slut walk uh, in downtown Peoria. They were asking me, where's the line? Where, how do you know when, okay, where's the line on this issue? And for me, it's dehumanization. And it has to be called out. We can give the opportunity to repent and leave, or be asked to leave. But I told this person, a shepherd must protect the sheep from the wolf. If someone were to come to Imago tomorrow and believe full-throatedly, wholeheartedly in white supremacy, white nationalism, there's a line. You're welcome here. 
but you can't teach that here. Because my motivation would be, hopefully at some point, they'd hear something that caused them to change their minds. But there has to be protection for the sheep. And dehumanization is the line. I know responsible, good gun, gun, good gun owners. And, and can, can we just say this? Just can we? I've wanted to say this. I can't tell you how long I wanted to say this, but I'm gonna say it now. Nobody wants to take away your guns. Nobody. Nobody. My family has guns. It's nobody wants to take away your guns. I'm just saying, an 18-year-old shall not be able to go buy one of those things that he bought. That should not happen. Can we at least have some agreement on that? I mean, I don't know why you need one of those things anyway. I'm not a hunter, but an 18-year-old? I don't get it. So the shooting happened while we were in France. And as soon as people found out we were from America, they had all the things they needed to say and all the questions. I don't speak French, but I did catch NRA, and I caught Biden, and I caught Texas, and Terry speaks French. And so they were like, this one guy, he was like very, he was a taxi driver, he was like heated, <laughs> speaking French, couldn't understand, you were following him pretty well, but I was like, I could tell he was angry. It was confusion, it was like, what are you thinking over there? I don't know, I don't know. But what I really want to do this morning is I would like to honor the children and their teachers that lost their lives in Texas a couple of weeks ago. So David, if you'll come forward. There are 21 chairs up here, and I'm going to turn, we're going to turn them around one by one and call the child's name and the adult's name as we do so. The first one is Layla. And McKenna. And Miranda. And Nevaeh. And Jose. Xavier. Tess, and I don't speak Spanish, so I'm sorry, I'm probably going to mispronounce this name, but Rogelio, Ellie, Eliana, Annabelle, Jackie, Irma, Eva, Uzziah, Jace, Alethea, Maite, Jayla, Anne-Marie, 
and legacy. A lot of us have baggage about going to an altar to pray, and that's fair. But if you're willing with me this morning, would you come forward this morning to pray for these families with me? If you're willing, you can pray right where you are. I don't want to give anybody any uncomfort. But those of you that are school teachers and school personnel, would you please come forward this morning? And for those of you that are willing to come pray, maybe lay a hand on someone, I would ask you to do that as well. We are so thankful for you and the fear that you have to live with every time you go into a school building. Thank you. Will you recite this liturgy with me this morning? O God who gathers what has been scattered, shelter us now in the shadow of your wings. O Christ who binds our wounds, be our great healer. O Spirit who enters our every grief, intercede now for this hurting people in this broken land. Be present in the midst of this far-reaching pain O oh Lord, for we are reeling again at news of another loss of life that touches us all, news of flourishing diminished, of individuals harmed, of pain imposed, not only upon victims and their families who bear now the immediate brunt of it, but also upon our nation. For we are connected as a people, and this hurt, this grief touches us all. Engage our imaginations and move our hearts to compassion, O oh Lord, that we would interact with these casualties, not as new stories or statistics, but as our sisters and brothers, flesh and blood, divine image bearers, irreplaceable individuals whose losses will leave gaping holes in our homes, friendships, workplaces, schools, churches, organizations, and neighborhoods. Be merciful to those now wounded. Be present with those now bereaved. You do not run from our brokenness, O oh God. You move ever toward those in need. Your heart is always inclined toward those who suffer. Now let your mercies be active through the hands, the words, and the compassionate care of those who willingly enter this sadness to console and to serve. Be with all who move toward this need, the helpers, the counselors, the first responders, those who offer aid and protection, the pastors and intercessors, those who meet immediate physical needs, practical needs, those who seek to heal physical wounds and those who come after to carry on the long hard work of rebuilding families and hearts and lives and community. Grant each of them wisdom, courage, vision, sympathy, and strength to serve effectively in their various capacities. Even in the shadow of such tragedy, let us not lose hope. Give us eyes to see the rapid movements of mercy rushing to fill these newly wounded spaces. Let us see in this the echoes of your own mercy and compassion, the foretaste of your kingdom coming to earth, and move our own hearts also, equipping us to intercede, to act, and to, to respond however we are able. Move, Holy Spirit, in the midst and in the aftermath 
of the tragedy in the wake of our wounding and the shadow and sorrow. Arrest the hearts and stay the hands of any who even now might be plotting further evil and violence against others, O Christ. Turn them from hatred. Turn their hearts toward you. Thank you.